All right, well, last week we looked at the teaching of fervency in prayer. And this week we're going to look at its demonstration. Of course, in the book of James, we have the example of Elijah, but we pose the question, are there others in the Word of God who demonstrated the same type of prayer, of fervency that we talked about last time? So we looked, we did a word study on the verse. We looked at how this word was used in the Bible to show uh, what James had in mind, because that's what we need to know. What does James have in mind? A lot of people have things in mind about this, and some are practicing things that James did not teach. So we're going to take a look at its demonstration, because anything that is taught in the Word of God for us to do is demonstrated by somebody. Now, I looked around for some information to help accomplish this on the Internet. Sometimes I like to put some questions in there and see what comes up. So I put this thing in there, and I found a whole lot of confusing confusing on these two verses. So I'm going to bring out some of the things that are taught. These were some prominent ministers. I'm not going to bring up anybody's name of who taught some of this stuff, but oh man, the things that are out there for this these verses. Um, and we're going to show you how this kind of confusion gets started and how you can stop it from going on, going on in your life. Now last week we were taking a look at the, some of the words in this, avail was one of the words we looked at. It says to be strong, able, forceful, or to prevail. It is a word that talks about exercising force, a word that means being able, or a word that means can do, our ability. Vine says to be strong, to prevail indicates a more forceful strength or ability than dunamai. So here it is, it's uh, rendered availeth much. Fervent is has 21 uses in the New Testament. We went through, boy, I'd say about 17 or 18 of them in the in the whole thing, just to give you a uh, an idea of this. And we saw that when this word was used, something became a part of what was going on in order to make it more effective. One one of those verses we looked at was in Matthew 4:2. This is John the Baptist, he is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Something has gotten in work in Jesus to make him more effective, and these people said it was John the Baptist. But that's what this word is is talking about. We have a lot of different views as to what fervency in prayer is, but if we go with taking a look at the word, what does that word mean, and how is it used in the Bible, then we can get an idea of what James had in mind when he used this word instead of what so-and-so, brother, sister, so-and-so says that this word is meaning. So that's why I don't want you to take my word for it. I wanted, I, we spent a lot of time going through the word. We put Daryl to work back there. He had to pull in all kinds of scriptures and we just uh, really went through them all because I wanted you to see this. Now we're going to kind of relax a little bit on all that and take a look at some examples of where this was in use. So I, I made this note, it would seem that faith is what makes us effective where God's promises are involved. Faith is what makes us effective where God's promises for us are involved. Fervency is where God's plans against what the enemy is doing is to be brought about. Faith, God has made promises to us and our faith helps to bring those things about in our life. They may be going on other places, but our faith brings it about in our life. Fervency is where God's plans against what the enemy is doing are to be brought about. Now, uh, reading over the scripture here again, 
James 5.17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was, he was not something special. Don't look at Elijah and say, well, he was Elijah. We're not Elijah. We can't do these things. No, he said he's a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. So the first thing we're going to do is take a look at the story of Elijah. And uh, and check that out. But before we do, I want you to... Here are some insights from others. I put it in your outline as such. Um, that's what I put it in. This is a direct quote from somebody, uh, a supposedly learned uh, minister. Here's what... This is a direct quote. I did not add to this, take away from this, or change this. This is what he said on the website. Before we can learn to pray fervently, we must acknowledge that we have failed in our praying. I had to read that a couple of times. No, you didn't just say that. You did. Before we can learn to pray fervently, we must acknowledge that we have failed in our praying. What in the world is that about? Matthew Henry. Now, I only quote that because it's a written commentary and people can go there and you can find this. It is not enough to say a prayer, but we must pray in prayer. Anybody confused with that? Our thoughts must be fixed, our desires firm and ardent, and our graces in exercise. To Matthew Henry, what fervency is prayer in prayer means is intensity. That I am fully into the prayer. I just shake my head at this stuff. That's what you get out of what James is teaching? Oh, it's sometimes. When people say about these things, it just, it gets my dander up. Here's another one. It is possible to pray without really praying. Saying words without intentionally directing them to God. Reciting requests without expecting God to grant them. Using prayerful phrases without even understanding their meaning. So again, to this person, being involved in fervent prayer means you're not lackadaisical in the praying. But you are intent. The Bible gives us many great examples of fervent prayer beside Elijah's weather-altering prayers. I'm, this is not me. This is the stuff. This is still insight from others. As James points us to. Now, I've heard uh, people throw this one out. And the only reason I included this one in there is this particular example feeds to the part of us thinking it's the intensity in prayer. It's our dedication in prayer. It's something that we're doing in prayer. We miss the example that's there. And, uh, well, this is, uh, we don't need to, I'm going to go past that. We'll come back to that maybe later. When we examine our prayers, are they hearty and sincere? Are they focused? Are they expectant? Are we pouring out our hearts to God? Are we praying in our praying? Now, here's a very well-known minister on TV a whole mess of times. This is what they had. This is the insight they had to say. So how did Elijah pray earnestly? You'll be surprised to know that his prayer was not a long, intense, sweating-induced prayer. No dropping to his knees to plead with God for hours or days. Did he read Kings? Did he read the account of Elijah dropping to his knees with his head between his, his knees, bowing down on the ground? 
and per, did he did he read that? <laughs> I I don't I don't know. Elijah's earnest prayer was just a simple declaration of faith. As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Well, that's what we have from the king's account on the first part of there not being any rain, not the second part of there of their, um, being, um, being rain coming. But according to what James teaches us, the fervency in prayer he had in the part of bringing the rain is the same fervency he had in prayer in bringing about the drought. So this particular minister wants to say that all that fervency in prayer is is a declaration of the Word of God. My friend, you can see that our idea of praying earnestly is very different from that of God's. Today, you don't have to beg God for your miracle because He is more than willing to meet your needs. So according to him, the reason that Elijah had to pray fervently is because he's in the Old Testament. All you need to do is trust His grace and speak to your mountain in faith. That's praying earnestly to God. That's an effective prayer that will produce dynamic, wonderful results. Now, another author tied this kind of praying, fervent prayer, to anything that would be described as any demonstration of power such as, in Genesis chapter 24, Abram's servant prayed and Rebekah appeared. <laughs> Remember when the servant prayed? Father God, let me find somebody. For, and, the, and she appeared. Uh, in 2 Kings 19, Isaiah and Hezekiah prayed. And in 12 hours, 185,000 Assyrians were slain. And he went on and listed a couple of others. And basically anything great that was done in the Old Testament was done because of fervent prayer. Because people were really serious about praying. And what I'm hoping that you understand is that fervent prayer to James is not the same thing as a faith-filled prayer that he talked about in chapter 1. Chapter 1, he talked about faith-filled prayers. In chapter 5, he's not talking about faith-filled prayers. He's talking about a different type of prayer, a prayer in which we exert strength, we exert force against something. Now, I put this in there, and I did not have time to include all this, so you can write down... This, if you want to, or just bypass it, whatever you, you feel like. But basically, there are five cycles in this, or five steps in the cycle. How do you, how do such things get started and how do we recognize them? First, what is taught in scripture is misconstrued. In order to get going on a wrong thing, what is taught in scripture has to be misconstrued. We have to take what was stated in scripture and we have to make it say something different, which is the first step these all took. They took what James wrote, they decided to get their own understanding out of it, and then they began to preach and to uh, draw conclusions from that. I cannot draw my own conclusions from Scripture. The Word of God says it's not for any private interpretation. That's why I constantly go back to the Word. What did that word, fervent, what did that word, avail, mean to James? doesn't matter what it means to me. What's it mean to James when he wrote it? Secondly, how was that used in the Word of God? And so when we, uh, can, when we can see it in over 20 verses where this word is used and it almost always carries the same type of meaning, well, then we are uh, pretty close to getting what James is probably talking about, which is not what any of those other authors was talking about. So first thing is that what is taught in Scripture has to be misconstrued. 
gets back to the Bible teaching, you must rightly divide the Word of God. If you do not rightly divide the Word of God, you will you will get lost in this. And rightly dividing the Word of God, you divide by other things. So we have to go to the other parts of Scripture and understand Scripture through Scripture. Second, on the basis of this, a wrong understanding demonstration is cited for support and example. On the basis of this, a wrong understanding. We get a, we gain a wrong understanding and demonstration is cited for support and example. So since I have a wrong understanding, I go to the Word of God to try and find that wrong thing portrayed. And so we find examples where the wrong thing is done. Now I have examples for it. Third, personal experiences is brought into the wrong understanding, further supporting it. So I've got a personal story that I can say, this is what went on. Because people generally interpret the word in light of their experience, instead of their experience experience interpreted by the word of God. So that's the third step. The fourth one, our emotions become engaged, triggering our flesh, which is understood by the people at the time to be their spirit, making us immune to correction. Once we get all this personal experience in, we hear how somebody was uh, tremendously healed or how they adjusted to whatever it was that God sent and what they learned and all these sort of things. We heard this personal experience and we've accepted that as, uh, as being truth. Our emotions become engaged. This triggers our flesh. Your emotions will trigger your flesh, not your spirit. But I understand it as my spirit making us immune to correction. No, you can't tell me that's wrong. Because in my spirit, I know, no, it's in your flesh that you knew. Your emotions got stirred up and in your flesh. You can't change those people once they get to that spot. Very difficult. Fifth, now we become flesh-level Christians and are ready for our next dose of flesh. We become more unimpressed with godly revelation with each cycle that we adopt. Each time we go through the cycle on something new, we become less impressed with what is godly, what it with godly revelation, all that impresses us is flesh revelation. And you may have known Christians that are so turned on by flesh revelation that you you hear them, you say, what? That, that got you excited? What? That's not even right. But they're all excited about it. It's because they have gone down this cycle. The key parts of fervent prayer, I don't think I gave these to you, maybe I did, but uh, the key parts of fervent prayer This is how you know you are involved in fervent prayer. And fervent prayer is not the prayer of faith. You don't go at the prayer of faith fervently. Fervent prayer is different. Here's the key parts of fervent prayer. You don't have to write any of this in. I gave it to you. I want to make sure you got it. We already know God's will. You already know what the will of God is. This prayer or type of praying is not to move God or access His promises. You are not getting involved in fervent prayer to move move God or access His promises. Force against something is being exerted. When you are involved in this kind of prayer, there is a force that you are exerting against something that's coming against what God said He wants to do. God said, this is what I'm going to do. There's a force that's coming against that. When you get involved in fervent prayer, you are joining forces with God to come against that force. Our role, lastly, our role is not adding faith to believe it will come about, but in joining a battle with those God sent to bring it about. And, well, we're going to show this to you pretty pretty soon, so. 
basically joining in or becoming a part of what go, what's going on to help its effectiveness. When we are involved in fervent prayer, we are basically joining in or becoming a part of what's going on to help its effectiveness. That's fervent prayer. This is not something you do all the time. But it is something that God will call on people for. So we're going to look at some examples. I pulled out uh, three other examples beside the example of Elijah, but we're going to take a look at the example of Elijah because this is what James brings out. And this is kind of our baseline for it. First Kings 17, and the whole story is in 17 and 18. We're going to be pulling some verses out of this to uh, uh, not read in the entire passage. Verse 1, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. And just the... Short backstory here, the ravens brought him food. They brought the food from the table that Ahab would set out to one of his gods every single morning. And the ravens would come in, they'd raid the table, and they'd bring the food over to Elijah. And that's how he was fed. He was being fed by Ahab. And then he went on into hiding in the territory of Sidon, and that's where Ahab's wife came from. So she's looking all over for him. She can't find him because he's over there hiding out in her hometown, her home uh, country. Jump on down to chapter 18, verse 1. The rest of it is uh, how he was provided for there by the widow. That's not really part of our story. But uh, let's go over here to verse 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and, now look at this, I will send rain on the earth. Does he know what the will of God is? He does. Did he know what the will of God was in chapter 17? Yes, God came to him and said, this is what I want to do. Here in 18, he now says, all right, now I want to send, I'm going to send rain upon the earth. So he says, rain won't come until my word, but his word is not going to be expressed until he knows it's the will of God for the rain to come. Then Elijah in verse 41, jump down to 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. This is after they did the whole sacrifice on the mountain. The altar of the Lord was rebuilt, got burned up by fire coming down. They slaughtered all the prophets of Baal. And after the people, and the people got involved and did this. This was key. The people got involved to kill the prophets of Baal. It was not just Elijah. So he engaged the people. Now the people are on a path of repentance to walk away from this God. And they went out and they killed the prophets of Baal. That's important. Because this is showing a change of direction on their part. It may not be a direction of change that lasts, but it's still a change of direction that they have done. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And 
Seven times he said, go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said there was a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. When we get to heaven, Elijah and I are going to be able to share in the joy of running in torrential rain. Not everybody enjoys that, but I'm sure that he and I will have a few conversations on that. <laughs> we'll just have some fun, some fun there on that part. But, um, he says to Ahab in verse 41, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. How many clouds are in the sky? There are none. He has the word from God, it's going to, I'm sending rain. But he still goes up on the top of Mount Carmel, bows down on the ground, and puts his face between his knees. I don't know how you can do that without being on your knees before God. Like the one author decided to say. And so then he sends his servant around, go up and see. Can you see if there's a, if there's a, anything coming, coming up? No, nope, sky's clear. Seven times he sent him. Finally, the seventh time he saw this little tiny cloud. He said the size of a man's hand. Oh, that's it. That's it. We need to get going now. Because now we have broken through. See, there was a force coming against this. And if we look at the whole scheme of things, the, the enemy is trying to keep the northern tribes deceived into thinking that continue to worship the gods that Satan sets up. And God says, no, don't worship them. Worship me. I'm the God over all. And so there's this battle that goes on. And so God says, all right, we're going to show who's, who's, who's God. And I am going to declare there's going to be no rain on this earth. Now, if they are serving the Baals, if they are serving Ashtoreth, if they're serving all these other gods, during this three and a half years, does it not stand the reason that they are going to go in prayer? They're going to go to the temples. They're going to be making sacrifices. They're going to be making supplication to their gods to be bringing rain upon the earth. We need rain. Are they not going to go to their gods and ask for rain? If they go to their gods and ask for rain, what do you think Satan wants to do? He wants to send rain. Because if he sends rain, then he shows that the word of God is, is not valid. He shows that his, he is greater than the word of God. He can show all kinds of things. He is actively trying to send rain upon the land. And so Elijah needs to pray earnestly that this rain doesn't happen. He does not need faith. He already has the word of God. God has already said this is what's going on. But he needs to come against the forces that are trying to come against the things of God. Which is why James teaches that he prayed fervently that it would not rain and it did not rain. Then he prayed fervently that it would rain and it did. So for three and a half years, the enemy is trying to send rain against what God has said. Then we have this big showdown on the mountain and Elijah declares, now rain is coming. Now, if you are on the enemy's camp, if you are part of of um, Satan's kingdom. What is your purpose now? Well, we can't let any rain be coming on up here. We got to stop whatever rain is there. So the 
the forces, and he is the God of this world. Remember, he offered all that, all those things to Jesus when in the temptations. So he is the God of this world. So he has some power in this, and so does God. And so then God is, God, the forces of God are working against the forces of Satan. And Elijah gets involved with this as a man on the earth. Apparently God didn't involve any other men on the earth, just Elijah. He's the only one. He only needed the one. He doesn't need a whole mess of them, but he needed the one. And Elijah went in there and did that. And he prayed fervently that it would rain. Now he prayed fervently, it seems. We don't know this for sure. When we get to heaven, we'll find out whether I'm right or wrong. But it would seem that he prayed fervently that it would not rain for the entire three and a half years. Whether that's every day he would get up, pray, pray one, come against it. I don't know how, for how long, but it seems that didn't occur here to bring the rain upon the earth. To bring the rain upon the earth, he may not have been praying more than an hour, maybe two hours, but he didn't pray for more than a, even half a day. Remember, half of the day was wasted with them all calling out to their God. And then after that, we had some time that he built, rebuilt the altar. And then after he rebuilt the altar, he set up the sacrifice and the fire comes down. Let's just say that all that took two hours. It may not have, may have taken an hour. But if it took two hours, you now got two o'clock in the afternoon. Then he makes a declaration to Ahab. Well, I have to, actually, they have to go out and they have to kill all the prophets of Baal. How long does it take to kill the hundreds of uh, prophets of Baal that are out there and the Asherah prophets that are out there on there? That's going to take a little bit of time. Let's say that maybe four o'clock now. Four o'clock. Let's just estimate that somewhere around four o'clock he goes up to, to him and says, all right, you better get going because the rain's coming. So if that's the case, it would seem that he wasn't up there for more than an hour or two at the most. Maybe it was even less than that. It's not a matter that it, that this has to take days and years fervent praying. But all he had to do was was pray until there was a breakthrough. He didn't have to stay up there and pray until the rain came. Because he's not trying to bring the rain. God says, I'm sending the rain. What he had to do was break through the forces that were trying to hold it back. And that's what he did. This is fervent praying. Now, in this particular instance, is the will of God known? It sure was. Elijah's praying cannot be to move God since God said, I will send rain on the earth. He said that to him. Apparently, he said also, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna make sure that there's a drought, that there's, that there's no rain on the earth. But here we have him actually saying, I will send rain on the earth. So what would stand in the way of what God said he would do? It's not gonna be Ahab. He's got no power in this. So there has to be the forces of darkness that are there. Now I put this in your outline for you. Elijah's praying is listed here in James. James talks about the prayers of Elijah the fervent prayer. But there is a place in Scripture where this prayer is glaringly absent. Its absence seems to tell us a whole lot. And I was, when I was thinking about this, why is his prayer not included here? Now, I didn't put this in your outline. You can write it in here if you want to. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. This is where he, he stops talking about individuals and their great faith and he begins to go through a whole list. Listen to this. 
By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Was the prayer and faith involved? Apparently. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the, the spies with peace. In order for them to be included, isn't the prayer of faith? What's the focus here? And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, look at the list here, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises. By faith we obtain promises. Stopped the mouths of lions. Quenched the violence of fire. Escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight, the enemies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials, trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sown in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having attained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Where is the prayers of Elijah? Why is Elijah left off of this list of of a great uh, great people of faith. Why is the prayers of Elijah to not have it rain on the earth for three and a half years not in here? And why is the prayers of Elijah to bring rain upon the earth not in this listing? Not even a mention of rain. Why would that be? Because this is not the prayer of faith. This is the prayer of fervency. It is different than the prayer of faith. People get into confusion because they mix what James is teaching here in chapter 5 about fervency in prayer with what he taught about faith. They mix what he teaches here about fervency in prayer with what others teach about faith and they mix the two together and the two do not produce anything good. Fervent prayer is not the prayer of faith. I don't need to be Watch it. Well, how engaged am I? Maybe I was not engaged enough. That is just gibberish if, if I heard that. But this is, this is not here. Fervency is prayer is God saying, Elijah, this is what I want to accomplish on the earth. Now, I need you on the earth to grab hold of this. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at three other examples where fervency and prayer is. And you can go and you can think of maybe some more on your own. But let's take a look at some others. Here's my favorite, Daniel. Now, we're not going to read this. I was telling Daryl before the service, it's everything in me not to go into some stuff in Daniel here because I was just reading this over just for the fun of it this afternoon. I read Daniel 9, 10, 11, and 12 just so I had a good idea of what was going on in, in here. And I saw some stuff from just looking at it from a standpoint of fervency and prayer. I said, oh, man, I did not see that before. Oh, that was fun. But in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 
I'm just going to summarize this chapter for you. In Daniel chapter 9, he sees the prophets say, 70 years are determined for your people. <gasps> 70 years? We've reached the end of the 70 years. Now what happens to our people? And so he asked God, God, what happens to our people now at the end of 70 years? And so you know what happens after he asks God for that? God sends the answer. Do you know when the answer gets to him? In the end of his prayer. In chapter 9, as soon as he finishes praying, the angel shows up. Daniel, I heard you the moment you prayed. Here's the answer. And he lays out all the years that are laid out for Israel. 490 years are determined for your people. And he breaks them up into things. You know what that tells me? There was absolutely no opposition to Daniel receiving the revelation of what he came to understand in chapter 9. Because he went on prayed. And then you look at chapter 9, he has a, a prayer there listed. And at the end of the prayer, here comes the angel. But now we're going to take a look at chapter chapter 10. Oh, and I did not include it in my in my deal. All right, so why did I not... Uh, can you pull that up for me? Daniel chapter 9. Uh, no, Daniel chapter 10, verse 1 through 9. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, let's read that. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is two years after the previous one, a message was revealed to Daniel whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long and he understood the message and he had understanding of the vision. So look at this. He has a vision Appointed, the appointed time was long. He understood the message and had understanding of the vision. Hey, he had understanding of the vision, but there's more. Go on. In those days, I, Daniel, was in mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was <clears throat> by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and behold, a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of upas. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, and his arms, the feet like burnished bronze in color. And the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide, hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone when I saw the great vision and no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Is that the end of it? Boy, I did not give you enough of those verses. I don't know. I usually have it all right on in here. Let me uh, summarize the rest of this to you and if you want to, you go home, read 10, 11, and 12. It's fun. But I can summarize it for you. He goes on and tells them. He said, Daniel, when you first made your request on this, I was sent. I was sent here to bring you the answer. But the prince of Persia withstood me. And that's why he was delayed. As soon as he was, as soon as he prayed, the answer was dispatched and it was sent down to Daniel, but it did not get to him for three full weeks because there was a battle in the heavens between this particular angel and the uh, prince of Persia. 
And he said, until Michael came along, that's what's listed in there, until Michael came along, Michael, who is the uh, warrior angel for the nation of Israel, they, he watches over them and, and, and guards them and, and uh, fights for them. And so he came in and don't know why it took three whole weeks for Michael to get involved. Don't know what other assignment he was on or what thing he was doing. Angels are not omnipresent. They can't be all places. They can be only one place at a time. And so wherever he was, he was tied up. He was busy. He wasn't just over there eating grapes in heaven. But he came on over here and he helped them. And once he did that, he came over and he engaged the Prince of Persia. And why the Prince of Persia didn't call more of their people in to help in this, I don't know. But uh, what I want you to see over this is we know that it took three weeks. Three weeks the answer gets to him. Not because God did not want to send it. Not because God didn't want it revealed but because the enemy didn't want it to come. So I asked myself this question. What is different about Daniel chapter 9 where God unveils the whole entire history of 490 years and what would be going on with Israel all the way up until the end? Why is there no opposition to that? Why is there opposition to this? And so I read over it again for that purpose. And you know what is interesting about Daniel's chapter 10, 11, and 12? It doesn't give 490 years of history. But what it gives is how Antichrist is revealed. It shows where Antichrist is coming, what nation he comes from, and the timing and the things that he will do. We know more about the ministry, or the, I'm sorry, the work of Antichrist through Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 than probably any other place in Scripture. In these chapters, what is depicted is that the Greece, the, the empire of Greece would come up. He was predicted, he was told him how the empire of Greece would come out. Where it would come out from. He told him the end of the Persian empire how the Persian Empire and how many kings were still to come and that the last king would be rich beyond beyond any of the other ones and then the uh, he would come against the the king of Greece to afflict him and then he would lose and we all know that to be the battle of Thermopylae where the 300 men fought them off and that turned the tide and pretty soon Greece has said, you know what, we're not sitting here anymore waiting for you to come back here and attack us. We're coming after you. And so they came on out and they got strong and they came on out and they demolished the Persian Empire. And they became strong. And then in this particular prophecy, he says, when that king dies, that empire will be divided up but not among his sons. And it wasn't. It was divided up among his generals. And if you've been through the end times class, you know that the, the Grecian Empire, in this particular vision, it's divided up into four. In Daniel's other vision, it was divided up into four. But in reality, the, king, the, the kingdom of Greece was not divided up into four. In reality, I think it was divided up in either 16 or 20. They had battles. They fought it. They uh, came down to uh, eventually seven, eventually six, then eventually five, and then eventually four. And do you know it was eventually came down to three? But the Bible says four. So if you've been through the end times class, you know we focused in on that. What happened between five and four? And what happened between five and four is that the king of the south 
and the king of the north decided to team up and they came after one of the kings that was in between them and the king of Macedonia. And they fought him and they took his territory and they divided up that territory and the king of the north grew probably more than the rest of them did. But the focal point was the king of the north and the king of the south. And the rest of that prophecy that Daniel gets, the focal point is the king of the north and the king of the south. And to this day, people still confuse the king of the north with Russia. The king of the north is not Russia. The king of the north is the northern kingdom of Greece. And the northern kingdom of Greece, everybody know who that is? Iraq, Iran, and Syria. That is the northern kingdom. Turkey. Turkey is very much involved in all that. These are the nations of the king of the north. And so now what you have here, it's important for me to summarize this. I need you to get to, to see this. Now what you have is the king of the north, more powerful than he was before, I guess, the king of the south. And in this, he depicts the battles that go on between the king of the north and the king of the south. And the accuracy is incredible. The things that were prophesied that happened in history are astounding. And he talks about this battle. The king of the north doesn't win this battle. The king of the south wins. And it goes back and forth and all this stuff that was happening. In the midst of this, when the kingdoms were divided up, Israel came under the territory of the king of the south. They decided in this prophecy, it talks about this battle in which Israel decides we are going to side with the king of the north and empower him to help us get free of the king of the south. In this prophecy, it tells them what will happen, what will occur when they do that. And so they, but they do it anyway. And what is neat about this prophecy is how well it takes what happened in the Old Testament under the kingdom of Greece and flows right into the new one, the, the New Testament and the kingdom that the king of the north that they would soon be facing. Because the king of the north is the kingdom that revives, not Rome. Rome is not the revised kingdom. And so the forerunner for any for Antichrist comes from the king of the north who was Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus the Great. And he did most everything that the Antichrist would do, but not quite all. And he didn't quite reign for the three and a half years, but came close to it. He was the forerunner. Anybody who tries to tell you that the king of the north, or the, I'm sorry, that the Antichrist is coming from Europe does not know the Bible. That the king of that the Antichrist is coming from the United States does not know the Bible. That the Antichrist is coming from any other nation. They do not know the Bible. Because the Bible is very clear. He is coming from the region of Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Syria. That's where he's coming from. In fact, in one place in the Word of God it says he call, calls Antichrist the Assyrian which is all that area that Assyria had, uh, had conquered. And so he says all this. So what the devil is doing is we cannot let this revelation of where Antichrist is coming from be let out. Because if it's let out, it's going to be harder for us to bring it about because people will know. Apparently, even though people knew they still didn't avoid it. And Israel, even though they had the prophecy in their hands, don't go under the king of the north. They decided to empower the king of the north 
and put themselves under it, and they faced terrible things under, under Antiochus Epiphanes. But they decided that what they were facing under the king of the south was too, too uh, great. The king of the south was the Ptolemies. They decided to go after that. But who was the message delivered by? Anybody notice that? The message of Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 is delivered by an angel. Keep that in mind. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord, an angel, not the angel, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up saying, Arise quickly and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. So he did and he said, Put on your garment, follow me. So he went out and followed him, did not know that that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Well, he's seen a few visions. You can understand why. When they were past the first and second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down this one street. And immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod, from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, and where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It is his angels. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished, but motioned, to them with his motioning to them with his hand to keep silent he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and he said go tell these things to James and to brethren and he departed and went to other place to another place then as soon as it was day there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter but when Herod had searched for him not found him he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death and he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there if you read the verses that come after this, you'll find out that Herod died a violent death after this because he came against the things of God. Is the will of God known about what God wants done with Peter? Does God want Peter in prison? Does God want Peter executed the next day? No. So we know the will of God. Who carried out the will of God? An angel. So the people prayed for him to be delivered. An angel was sent to set him free, to deliver him. Now I put this in your outline for you. Has there been a hindrance to this way of God sending an answer before? There sure has. How was it overcome? By people being in fervent prayer. Often we pick on this group who were praying for their apparent lack of faith. And that's all. I think, I, I think I have a few times. Here they are in there praying for him to be set free. He's set free. No, that can't be Peter. 
Well, you see, if you are involved in fervent prayer, you're not involved in the prayer of faith. You are fighting. You are pushing against something. If they were involved in fervent prayer, they were pushing against something. And just didn't realize that this would be done already. It may have been something more along those lines. So maybe their faith wasn't what we should have been looking at at all. Another instance, this might help you with this because sometimes we look at this and I don't know about you, but I've just wondered, what? This just seems like a weird story. Exodus 17, verse 8. Now, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Look at this. I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God. Where? I will, you gotta get this down. I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his what? His hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Have you ever wondered why that was so? I mean, why in the world does he have to keep his hands up and why doesn't God ever say, keep your hands up? Now, let me read verse 11 to you again. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. How many have the picture when you see the movie? When you, what's Moses doing with his hand? Hands. Does he not have both hands up in the air when you see him in the movie? Are his hands not like this in the movie? And yet, look at the verse of Scripture. What's it say? Hand. What's in his hand? The rod of God. He was to take the rod of God and hold it with his hand up in the air. So this is what Moses is doing. Moses is standing there with the rod of God in his hand, holding it up in the air. After a while, when you hold something with one hand up in the air, what happens to your hand? Arm, actually. Gets tired. So what do you do? You switch hands. So now he's got it in the other hand. And he's holding it up here like this. Rest in this hand, right? What happens after a while? This hand gets tired. So then what do you do? You switch hands again. How much endurance does this hand have now from compared to the last time? It, isn't it less? Doesn't this hand get, if you held up for, let's just say, 15 minutes. If you did 15 minutes up there and then gave it rest and held this one up for 15, this one's got 15 minutes of rest. How long do you think it's going to hold it up there now? Not very long, is it? So maybe in the next time he's only got five minutes. So if he's got maybe seven or five minutes holding it up and then he switches over back over here, he may get to a point and says, oh man, I just can't do this. My arms are so tired. Oh, and he does this and he starts to try and shake out his arms. Isn't that what you, that's what I do. I try and shake out my arms, get loosened up a little bit. I gotta get up there. I gotta hold that rod. I gotta get that back up in the air again. Verse 12. But Moses' hands, plural, became heavy. Why does it say hands? Because he kept switching them. And as he switched them, pretty soon, both hands are heavy and we're not holding them up. All right, we've got to come up with another way. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. 
And Aaron and Hur supported his hands. So all right, the idea, we got to get this up over. So you sit down. So have him sit down and you can hold it. And then I can stand over here and I can help hold your hand. Basically holding his arm and uh, and keeping it up. And so now he's over here. He's uh, Aaron's over here on the one side holding the left arm maybe or the right arm. He's holding it up there and keeping it up. And after a while, Moses said, i got to put that hand down. That hand, it just can't stay up in the air anymore. And so we'll switch hands. And so who's holding it now? Her. Her's holding the hand on the other side. So they're holding his hands, but they're not holding his hands up. One is taking a turn, holding his right hand up. Then the other one takes a turn, holds his left hand up. Can you get that picture? So, but, but Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hurt supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and count it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. What's the will of God in this situation? That Amalek will be blotted out from the from under heaven. So what's the will of God in this battle? For them to win. They know the will of God. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, as we said to you, it was not just Moses' hand being held up, but what was in it. The rod. It was the rod. The rod needed to be up. Herod supported the hand while the rod was in it, and her would, would uh, switch off. Now, I put this in your outline for you too. It is not the faith that is the focus here, but the fervency. It's not faith that's in the focus here. It's the fervency. They had to stay with, they had to be at this thing. They had to continue in it. It's the will of God for them to win the battle. But they needed to stay in there. God needed them to be engaged in this. By them doing this, they were taking something that was already in play, already going on, and they were adding strength to it. Whatever the reason was, God didn't need this in any other battle, but he needed it in this battle. I need the rod of God, just like that rod of God was put over the Red Sea, just like the rod of God was was used in bringing the water, just as the rod of God was used in these other things. I need the rod of God to be held up during this battle. Moses, I need you to do it. So Moses got in there and did it, and that helped add strength to what it was that God was doing. Now I put this here in the, at the end here for you. Faith-filled prayers engage the authority and promises of God given to us. Faith-filled prayers, they engage the authority and promises of God given to us. That's a faith-filled prayer. When I stand in faith, I can engage that authority. I have authority in the in the things of God. I can say to this sickness, go. I can say to this mountain, go. I can say to this disease, go. I can say to this thing, go, and it goes. I can say to this thing, come, and it comes. I have authority. I can do that with faith-filled um, speaking, faith-filled prayers. I can access the promises of God through this as well. But fervency in prayer engages the enemy against the plans and purposes of God and the messengers God sends to accomplish them. 
in the few times that we are seen, get to see the behind the scenes aspects of these times that fervent prayer was used, we see that the angels were being used. When the angels are being used, Satan has angels that can fight against them. But when we stand with the angels, when we stand with the plan of God, God is able to do some things through the messengers that are there on our behalf to accomplish what he wants to do. Just as Daniel, he stayed in prayer. He didn't let up for three full weeks. Now he let up after three full weeks because the answer came. There's no reason to stand in, in prayer anymore once you got the answer. And boy, did he get an answer. Boy, 10, 11, and 12, that is just something else to to read through. Very often, angels are involved in these things when fervent prayer is in use. And by our fervency in prayer, by us staying in there, we are helping to empower. We're adding something to it. God is working through us to bring this thing about. It's not faith. It's not our faith that's involved in this. It was not the faith of Elijah that was involved. It was his fervency in prayer. It was his engaging. God, this is what you want to do. We're going to bring this thing about. Never does Elijah get engaged. God, oh please God, make this happen. Oh please God, don't let the rain come. He's not engaged that way. He's standing there against the enemy. Enemy, you will not bring rain. Now, if that same Elijah could stand against the enemy and stop the enemy from bringing the rain and stop the enemy from preventing the rain, don't you think it stands the reason if you were here a long time ago when we went over the, the battle. Don't you think it stands the reason that Elijah is the reason why the prophets of Baal couldn't bring the fire? Because he prevented it from coming. He learned the fervency in prayer to stop the plan that the enemy had against the plans of God. And he's been standing against it for three and a half years. And he knows that they want to try and call fire down. And he stands against them from doing so. When we get involved in fervent prayer, we are taking what God has already said he wants to do. And we're joining forces with him. And we add our fervency to it. Do not think for a moment that your fervency has any effect on the things that your faith is supposed to have an effect for. Your faith has that effect. Stand and believe. And that's all we need to do. Do not mix these two. They do not work mixed together. You are either in a faith-filled prayer or you are in a fervent prayer. And there's other kinds of prayers as well, but these certainly are, are two different ones and we don't want to get them mixed up. Now, I gave you a couple of examples. You can probably go through the Word of God now and find some others. But understand the, the, uh, the important aspects of this the will of God is known. We already know the will of God when we, are, when we get involved. If you don't know the will of God, you cannot pray fervently. You cannot be in fervent prayer. You cannot stand against the enemy and execute, execute force on it because you don't know what the will of God is. We're not here to move God. We're not here to access His promises. You are here to be a force against something that is being exerted against the plans, the stated plans of God. And our role is not adding faith to believe it will come about, but in joining a battle with those God sent to bring it about. 
We've heard things declared over our nation. God says, this is what I want. And we as Christians are to be involved in fervent prayer. Not faith-filled prayers. I mean, there's faith, in, I'm sure, in everything that we do. But it's not, Father God, I believe that this will... No, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. I understand, God, you said this is here. Satan, we come against you. You will not bring this thing on our land. You will not do these... You come against it. In fervent prayer, you are coming against what the enemy is trying to do against the plans of God. That's what he is talking about. And that's what he's teaching them. And so I thought it'd be good for us to take a look at these other examples and see that, that in there. Father, we thank you for the instruction that James gives us on fervent prayer. That we know in this world there are many things that are going against the plans of God. We don't have to be on the sidelines saying, well, I guess there's nothing we can do. But we can be involved in fervent prayer by knowing what the will of God is and standing with you against the forces of the enemy and seeing that your angels are empowered to come against those things. They engage forces of darkness where they go and they need our fervent prayers as they engage these battles. We see that it has helped in the Old Testament. We see even that it helped in the New Testament. And it will help in our day as well. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Any comments or questions? Anything to add? Yeah. Oh, no, they're, they're not on. They come on from the stage now. Yeah, just, just go ahead. I'll try and repeat it. This one will do. You have to turn on number five. Down to the, the power button, number five. Um, you got it. Okay. Uh, Romans... Eight, um, you had mentioned that uh, if we don't know the will of God, uh, we can't pray fervently. Is that what you said? You can't get involved in the fervent battle of prayer if you don't know what the will of God is. If you don't know what the plan of God is. What is the plan of God in this situation? Okay, but um, I'm asking because it says in Romans 8, so we, so to the Holy Spirit... Uh, comes to our aid and bears us up in our weakness. We do not know what prayer to pray, to offer. Yeah, I'm different kind of prayer. You can pray that when you don't know the will of God. Right. But you won't be involved in a fervent prayer that James is speaking of. To get involved in the fervent prayer that James is speaking of, I know what the will of God is in this situation. This will of God is not necessarily a will of God or a plan of God for my life. It's generally something on a larger scale. It's a plan for a group of people. It's a plan for a nation. It's a plan for... It, it involves more than me. It's, it's, it's something that the enemy is targeting and wants to come against. That is the will of God for my life. I don't know all the plans that God has for my life. No. But I can still pray according to that. And the Spirit will pray through me for those particular plans to come about. Romans 8, you mean? Yep. 
But we're not looking at the kind of opposition to those plans that we're looking at the opposition that James is talking about. James is talking about fervent prayer getting involved. When he brings up Elijah as an example, Elijah was against the nation. He was against okay. all the forces that were behind the the um, apostasy of that nation. Right. And this is what he was coming against. Okay. So he knew what the will of God was. The will right. of God was mm-hmm. no rain. Right. Now he didn't know. I don't think he knew from the beginning it was going to be no rain for three and a half years. He just knew no rain. And then he knew now rain is coming. Okay. I'll chew on it. But that that particular one is for my life. There are for, things that God has for will for His will for my life. I don't know all the things, but I can still pray them. You talking about Romans eight? Romans eight. I can still pray those. I can pray about them, praying in the Spirit, because the Spirit will pray through me those things that are necessary to bring about about those. But we're not looking at the opposition that's there. Mm-hmm. It's not using the words that has a force involved. It's looking at um, words. It's just basically something that's unknown. I don't know how to pray. And the Spirit comes along and helps me. Does that make more sense? So this is not, say, if um, uh, you know someone who has a, is going through something. Oh, no, you can pray for other people, pray too. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, you can pray for other people. I mean, even... We didn't use this example here today, but you could use the example of Paul when he prayed for the church. The prayer in Ephesians 1, the prayer in Ephesians 3, the prayer in Colossians 1. These are things he prayed on a regular basis. Hmm. You could say what he was doing was a fervent prayer. He knows the will of God. I know God wants you to grow in these things. So every day he made mention of them. He came after them and prayed these things that they would come about in their life. And we have those things that he prayed. They were for the people. But he, he still prayed those things. Now, would the enemy come against those things that are listed in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, and in Colossians 1? Absolutely, the enemy would come against those things. He wants to try and prevent those things from happening. Right. So, uh, that's another example you could use. Those uh, examples of Paul, where Paul was fervently praying for the church in these areas. Uh, another question. Yeah. Uh, Peter had intercession made for him. You say intercession, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't say intercession, well, but he had prayers being made for right. him. Yeah. Would that be intercession prayer? No. That's just fervent prayer. That was just fervent prayer. Intercession prayer is standing in the gap. You have you make right. inter- prayers of intercession right. for someone who can't make the prayer themselves. They're not in a position. There's a gap between them and God. And you stand in the gap to bridge that. That could be for unsaved people. It could also be for somebody who's backslid. But it's not going to be for a believer. You do not make intercessory prayers for believers. So they made fervent prayer for Paul. Oh, I'm sorry, believers that are in life standing. I should say it that way. They made fervent prayer prayer for Peter. Yes. That's why I said you look at that as a fervent prayer, not a prayer of faith. Because a lot of times we're, we're judging them for their lack of faith because they didn't believe it was Peter. Hmm. He was at the door. But I don't think they were engaged anymore. anymore. I don't think they were engaged in a faith prayer. I think they were engaged in fervent prayer and they were coming against the forces that moved Herod to put him in prison, which was the forces of people, which was the forces of public opinion, 
which is the forces of evil who stirred all these things up to try and take out the top men that God had in the church. And James was one of the first ones. And when he saw everybody was all thrilled about James, he said, oh, let's go get Peter. And we put him in prison and we're going to kill him too. So James got whacked because he had prayer made for him. Apparently nobody made prayer and prayer for him. <laughs> Anything else, Lenore? Okay. Great. Yeah. I'm going to pass the mic, mic back. This is my question. Okay. So, if we're praying for our country, correct? Mm-hmm. We're praying fervently for our country. We sort of know the will. I believe we know the will of God for mm-hmm. our country. So, would you say if we continue in fervent prayer, we'll see a turnaround Absolutely. for our country? Okay. Just wondering. Yep. Know what the will of God is. Pray for it. Don't give up on it. Okay. Don't, don't, uh, don't lay that aside. You had something. Can you pray in tongues or no? I will, I can't say yes or no to, I probably wouldn't say no to, to praying that way. Um, but understand, tongues do nothing against the kingdom of darkness. There are no warring tongues. There are no, uh, he doesn't understand them. Uh, we're, we, it, right. The word of God says we pray to God, right. not to him. And we aren't praying to him anyway. Um, no, we, we need to, to use words of English, or words that we understand uh, as we, we stand against that. But if I'm not exact, if I'm not sure, I'm not sure what we're, I know we're facing something. I know we're involved in the battle. I can pray in the spirit for clarity that I can get, I, don't, I, don't, I need to be praying something, I'm just not sure what. And so you can pray for clarity on that as you get clarity and you begin to declare that thing out there and, okay. and do that. Good question. Absolutely. You have to know the will of God first. You cannot be involved in a fervent prayer without knowing the will of God. Every example I gave you, they knew the will of God. If you don't know the will of God, it's not a fervent prayer. It's, it, and that doesn't mean you can't pray not knowing the will of God. It just means this particular prayer requires that you know the will of God. As uh, also has been said, faith begins... Where the will of God is known. I can't pray the prayer of faith without knowing the will of God either. I gotta know what's the will of God for healing. What's the will of God for whatever it is that I'm believing for. I gotta know what is the will of God for that thing before I can engage in, in a faith-filled prayer. But there's a lot of prayers I can make that don't know the will of God. These are to find out. Jesus in the garden. Not my will, but yours. He's, he's, I know what the will of God is. I'm just seeking that there's another way. Another way to, to accomplish this, and then now there isn't. This is what we got to do. So he just got clarity on it. Sweats of blood. Sweat of, uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I would say that fervent prayer was involved in there somewhere, but there was also a diff- another kind of prayer where he was not as sure. God, Father, is there is another way. Now, he knew the will of God, but it was just, uh, is there another way? So there was some uncertainty to it. But yeah, you know he was engaging forces of the of, of evil that were coming against him. So he was probably involved in several types of prayers in the garden, not all of which we will know because we don't know too much of what he prayed. They didn't uh, they were sleeping so they didn't record anything that they they heard. Uh, they had been awake, maybe they could have recorded some of that stuff and we would have learned more about prayer, but they all fell asleep. Jesus told them to stay awake. I think we were supposed to know. But they all fell asleep. 
So we didn't get to uh, find that out. Yeah. And he stayed there. Yep. So he, he had enough sense to know that he was in trouble. I'm getting out of here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he did not come back. No. Nope. Now, before they, they got a freed from prison, they, they just hung around. Mm-hmm. But not this time. No. He, he said, no, nope, we're getting out of here. <laughs> well, he had also understood the forces that were coming against him. Peter understood these forces, they're not stopping. They want you dead. So, we need to move out. Uh, and go away from here. Paul sometimes came against those forces and he sometimes left the city. Um, you got to have some, some wisdom. What is preventing us from getting the breakthrough? Mm-hmm. Oh, it can be. There's also a lot of things that have been going on that we don't know. We could be making all kinds of uh, headway on here and, and, and we don't know. Um, things can be, the, the kingdom of darkness may be formulating all kinds of plans and it's just not working. It's not coming about. And they're getting frustrated and all we see is, well, nothing's happening. And then we just get tired and then we, we quit. No, don't quit. I know what the will of God is. I'm not going to drop out on that. I'm not going to quit on that until I see it come about. Um, you know, I, I know the will of God well enough to know when a leader in a country is doing the will of God or the leader in a country is directly coming against the will of God. And so I, I stay with the, the prayers we have. Um, very, we've, a lot of Christians are very trained that I need to see results. Yeah, we do that, don't we? Yeah. Hang on, you, if you don't have the microphone, nobody online can hear you. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's on. Okay. Um, there's a lot of questions about, um, like, prayer. I mean, I'm hearing a lot of things about, like, we need to pray and fast. Do you feel that praying and fasting will sort of help with the breakthrough? As long as sometimes people think that fasting moves God. Mm-hmm. And of course, fasting is not going to move God. If we know the will of God, then we know God wants to do this. Mm-hmm. As long as we don't adopt the idea that, well, I'm doing this to move the hand. You are not doing this to move the hand of God. The hand of God has already been declared what he wants to do. We need to come against the other the other things that are that are there. We have countless examples of people in the Word of God who fasted to accomplish some of these things. Like Esther. Um, oh yeah, I I wouldn't tell you not to fast. I wouldn't tell you that uh, necessarily is the key ingredient. That until we get more people fasting, then that's just not gonna yeah. not gonna bring it about. Um, but yeah, you can go with your spirit hmm. on that. But don't don't um, don't back off. Don't stop. 
Don't, uh, well, I guess God's just not doing it. Well, I guess our, uh, some Christians do this. Boy, I'll tell you, this irritates me. I try not to let it be, be visible. But boy, it irritates me on the inside when I hear Christians. Well, I guess this just must be the will of God. Oh, I get so frosted, mad inside on, my, on that. I try to make sure it doesn't come out in my face. But boy, do I get frosted, mad on They're that. They're growing weary like, in the battle. <laughs> you, you, you ought to know what the will of God is. You ought to know this is not the will of God. Christians who want to say, well, I guess this is the will of God. Are you kidding me? What kind of God do you serve that you see that God wants to... Oh, it just get me so angry that um, that they know that little about their God, that they think their God is behind any of that or wants any of that, desires any of that. Never does God desire any of those things to be going on. Ever does God ever desire all that stuff to be going on. And they are they are ignorant. And some of these people want to pass themselves off as being super spiritual, and it, God does all that. You get right. If you can't know that basic part of the will of God, don't be telling me how spiritual you are. That is a basic, basic stuff. But yeah. there was a request for clarity. On. You intercede for people that are not in right standing with God, whether they be born again, past born again, never born again, whatever. Intercession is, the makeup of it is to stand in the gap. In order to intercede, there must be a gap. There must be something between the person we're praying for and the God we're trying to join them up with. That can, we can intercede for Christians that are backslidden or somehow put a gap between them and God. But generally, Paul will refer to prayers for Christians if we are teaming up with Christians to pray for certain things or to join in prayer. That's prayers of supplication. Now you say, well, it's just a word. Well, just understand the, the meaning of it. Intercession, I am not standing in the gap between me and another Christian, between me and another person, if there's no gap there. When you are interceding, you are taking the place of someone being that person in the middle because this person over here, they can't get there and God's over here. And so I'm going to be in the middle and bring the two together. That's something that you can do. But supplication is, here's a believer in right standing and they're believing God for whatever it is in their life. Well, I can join with them and help them, but that's just not intercession. Intercession, if you watch it through the Word of God, if you look at it through the Word of God, every time we are interceding, it's for someone there is a gap between them and God. And we're there to fill in that gap. That is what an intercessor is. They fill in the gap. I think that's actually part of the definition. Does that uh, help bring clarity? Okay. Yeah, it takes a little while for the, for the delay to, to get there too. Oh, okay. <laughs> Anything else? If it's a, a Christian believer that's mm-hmm. struggling and having a really hard time and we're really praying for that person, is that a prayer supplication then? Or is that... They're having a hard time. They haven't fallen from grace. They haven't fallen into unrighteousness. They're just having a difficult time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just standing with them. I'm just, we're supplicating with them. Okay. We're making prayers. There's no gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if you're making intercessions for someone, you can't pray for anything for that person until you close that gap. That's that's what you got to do. You got to close that gap. 
Father God, they have gone off in the wrong direction. You pray for different things to bring them back. Because until you bring them back from that, I don't, whatever hard time they're going through is probably brought on themselves. You've got to close that gap. Once you get that going, then uh, a believer who's in right standing. I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm not saying that there's no sin in their life. But they're pursuing God. When God shows them something, oh yeah, okay, I'll correct that. They respond to God. That person, they're going through a hard time. I'm going to stand with you, brother. I'm going to stand with you, sister. We're going to be there to, together with you. And we're going to be praying with you on this. Uh, that's something that you can, you can certainly do. There's no gap to have to close. What's that? <laughs> I think we are. I think in a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, my wife is coming back up here. Mm-hmm. Does this give you a different perspective of the fervent prayer that James is talking about, though? Can you see that this is this is in Scripture? That it's not just a novelty. This is what Scripture is talking about. These are the examples of, of where it is. That's really what I want you to see. It's not what a lot... There's so much junk out there on this this and it just angers me because it takes people down a direction to where their prayers are completely ineffective and that just uh, leaves them in a place where they think they're doing what they're supposed to be doing but it's not working and that just leads them to a place of frustration and that's uh it's not going to be helpful anything else on our Uh, well, there was a gap between Sodom and Gomorrah. No, the will of God was to wipe it out. Yeah, he stated that, didn't he? <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Appreciate that feedback. All right. Well, there will be no Wednesday night service next week. Uh, Ethel is not able to commit to, to being here. I won't be here. And uh, Ethel will be, um, she's just not sure that uh, the where she's at will give her the opportunity to to be over here and 